Good morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful to for your love, for your kingdom, for the way you run your universe. We ask that your spirit will join us, fill our hearts, enlighten our minds, and help us to be effective agents at this time in human history for your kingdom, we pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing the new quarterly that Russell opened for us last week called The Promise, The Everlasting Covenant, and this is the one for 2021, and I went into my um, bookshelf and, and I pulled out from uh, first quarter 2003. The promise, the everlasting covenant. And then if you go and compare the two, other than the artwork, they're identical. They're just same author, complete reprint, stories, everything, essentially exactly the same. Because we know truth does not unfold. (laughs) We know that there's just static truth. And once you know it, there's nothing new to learn. That, uh, that our infinite God has downloaded all infinite knowledge into the minds of the believers, and so there's no growth, there's no maturing, there's no advancing in knowledge. So in, 20, in, in uh, 18 years, uh, it's, it's exactly... But, but, to, but in other areas, i just give you a, a sense of in 2003, there were no iPhones, no smartphones. They came out in 2007. There was no HDTV. Skype actually wasn't out when this, uh, when this was launched. YouTube was was not available yet. It hadn't been launched. Um, there was no Facebook or Twitter. Google hadn't gone public yet. Um, there was no Amazon Kindle readers. Windows XP did not exist yet. Just trying to say, and, and what we do, something called gene editing in, in medicine, hadn't been developed yet. I'm just saying, we know it was off. We have a great advantage to know that we had all truth long before science had their truth. They have to keep advancing. We get to, you know, I'm being tongue in cheek facetious here. It's a little irritating. Truth is unfolding. We serve an infinite God. We should be moving forward. And as we unpack the lesson this week, and I won't bring that again because I'll just bring the current one since they're identical. Uh, as we unpack the lesson, we should really be challenging ourselves, say, hey, how much should we be growing in truth? Should we not at least be in our spiritual and understanding uh, reality as God, as creator, should not be advancing in the same way every other field of knowledge is advancing? Do you think when we get to heaven, we'll stop advancing in our knowledge of God? No, it, for eternity future, it will be, we will continue to gain new insights and new wisdom because God's infinite, we're finite, we never become infinite. If you look into the quarterly, and Russell opened it, so I'm not going to read these paragraphs. I have other stuff I want to share today. But in the introduction to the quarterly, they, they made the contrast between a, uh, a, a human theorist who, who described how uh, human beings are fear-ridden, and because of fear, they, they will divide, and they'll become hostile, and they'll try to have con- they'll conquer each other. And, and therefore, what they need is they need a strong authoritarian government to take over their personal decision-making, so, and they will exchange their liberties and their freedoms in order to feel safe in a world, because without that authoritarian government, there is nothing but chaos. And so this was the, uh, the covenant of fear. That uh, fear leads people to become insecure, and in order not to be be afraid, they will surrender their liberties and freedoms to have security. Do we see that happening in the world today? That was, by the way, in the 16th century that that was written. But we see that process happening right before our eyes. And they contrast, and, and so what is the difference between the covenant of fear versus the covenant of love? The covenant of fear seeks control. That's what it seeks. It seeks to be controlled. Somebody else tell me the answer. Give me the rules. Somebody else enforce the rules. Somebody else take control or to be in control. I'm going to control because I'm afraid if I don't have control, somebody will hurt me. But the covenant of fear always seeks control. The covenant of love seeks freedom. Seeks to restore people to liberty, to freedom. Because love only grows in an atmosphere of freedom. In the second paragraph of, the, uh, the, of page three of the introduction, it says, how does it all work? Is it, is it as simple, that, talking about the covenant, how does the covenant work? Is it as simple as an exchange? It, it, that's what it is. It's as simple as an exchange. Christ takes our sins 
and gives us his righteousness so that through him we are accounted as righteous as God himself. In this way, sin is no longer attributed to us. It no longer has to to keep us separate from him. Murderers, adulterers, bigots, liars, thieves, and even incestuous can all be viewed as righteous as God himself. And this wonderful gift, this accounting of righteousness, comes to them by faith and faith alone. This is the phrase, righteousness by faith. Do you understand that whole thing? is a lie. It's a fraud. It's a deceit. It's a corruption. Do you understand that? This is an infection. This is Satan's imperial law construct being taught through the beautiful truth of righteous by faith. Let's let's give some truths. Truth. God is love. God is creator. God created human beings sinless in Eden. Adam and Eve sinned, taking humanity out of harmony with God and God's design for life. And humanity, because of Adam's choice, is terminal, dead in trespass and sin, has a condition which, without remedy, results in death. Jesus is our substitutionary Savior, Messiah, and no one could be saved without him. These are all truths. The question, though, is, as the lesson said, how does it all work? And that all depends on, what's the question I ask in here? What law lens are you looking through? If you understand the sin problem through human law, system of rules, made up, require enforcement, and you teach that God runs his universe like that, then you will come up with stuff like in this quarterly. Accounting, declaring, legislating, enforcing. If you understand God as creator and his laws are the laws upon which life are built, then you understand that sin transgresses the law, transgresses God's design, takes the person out of harmony with life itself, and without intervention from God, they die from sin. And God intervenes through Christ to restore sinners back into rightness, life, or righteousness. It's a completely different way of understanding it. And thus we can believe in substitutionary atonement, 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, their substitution. Christ is our substitute. But notice the reason that the scriptures give, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, Now, when you hear becoming righteous, does that mean the same thing to you as being viewed as righteous even though you're not righteous? Being accounted righteous, even though you're not righteous. Being declared righteous, even though you're not righteous. You see, the penal view has God, what's it say here? We are accounted as righteous. We are, uh, we are no longer attributed, our sins are no longer attributed to us. We are viewed as righteous. Nothing in here teaches we become righteous. The scripture teaches we become righteous through the victory of Christ. And this is what's so corrupt about the penal view. It takes amazing good news and traps billions into a system where they have a false sense of legal security while they remain in fear and selfishness. Did Jesus say to Nicodemus, unless a man be legally pardoned, unless a man have my righteousness credit to his book in heaven, unless a man be have me stand between the Father so the Father views that man as righteous even though he's not. Did Jesus say any of these things? What did he say to Nicodemus? Except a man be, what does born again mean? What's the metaphor? Renewed, recreated, transformed, healed, set right, put right. Unless they be... Die to self. Die to self and be reborn in selflessness. So if we want to use the language of accounting or credited or accounted in a righteous or right way, what's the only way we can actually apply that terminology in truth?
We can only be accounted righteous by God if, in fact, we are righteous. That's the only way. Will God lie and say we are one thing when we are actually another thing? Will he say he's righteous even though he's unrighteous? Will God say that? Understand that's what penal substitution teaches. They actually say it out loud. When you accept Jesus as your Savior, his substitutionary death is applied to your legal account in heaven, and God will declare you to be righteous even though you're not. That's in the writing. That's in their their theology. It's in their teaching. God lies. Galatians 3.6 is a classic passage they will use to try and support this falsehood. And this is what it says of the King James. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. There's that word, accounted, in the King James. In the NIV, it is says credited to him as righteousness. The word translated accounted or credited is uh, logizomai. Logizomai is the Greek. And if you look up in the, in the lexicon, Strong's Enhanced Lexicon, this is what it says about this word logizomai. To reckon, count, compute, calculate, count over. This word deals with reality. If I logizomai or reckon that my bank book has $25 in it, it has $25 in it. Otherwise, I am deceiving myself. This word refers to facts, not supposition. So if God logizomai or accounts Abraham as righteous, it's because Abraham has righteousness in him. Otherwise, God deceives himself and the rest of us. The only way we get accounted righteousness is to become the righteous through Christ. And this is what the Bible talks about. When you accept Christ, you get a new heart and right spirit. It is no longer I that live, but that's reality. We actually have a living Savior living in us. Yes. But in fairness, when you read the next paragraph, it says, but it does not end there. Through Jesus, the murders and all that. They, it brings, Jesus' blood brings not only forgiveness, but cleansing, healing, and restoration. And through Christ, we are born again. So, it almost does the opposite of what this paragraph before that says. That's because they, okay. So, what they do is they take justification or being declared righteous in a legal setting as something that happens legally and you're declared to be even though you're not. That's justification. And then they say sanctification is what you just read. So once you're legally justified, then God also heals and sanctifies. That's, that's what you're reading, the breakdown. It's, it's not true. The justification is also healing. We're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, in fact, I want to finish this up with this thing about Abraham. And you'll see the difference. There is the sanctification, the purification, the healing, the maturing, the growing, the developing process. There's no question. But that only happens after the heart has been set right. Not legally declared right, even though it's not. Actually set right or put right. That's what actual justification means. Um, the reason people teach this penal legal lie is because they have the wrong law lens which causes them to make the wrong diagnosis. If you accept the lie that God's law works like our law, then sin is transgression of law or breaking the rules or disobedience, behaviorally speaking so, and now you are under condemnation of the judiciary. God's government condemns you because you're a lawbreaker. And broken law requires enforcement. If you assume God's law works like our law, if you don't enforce the law, then there's chaos. There's anarchy. Everybody gets away with it. If we have speed limits out here and nobody ever enforces them, then the law really doesn't exist. The only way for it to actually exist is to be enforced. And this is the, the fraudulent, false landscape that is taught. And so the diagnosis is sin puts us in legal trouble. Salvation requires somebody has to pay that penalty. The law has to be maintained. It has to be upheld. So somebody has to come who doesn't have their own penalty to pay. You can't pay somebody else's life sentence. You can't be executed in somebody else's place if you have to die for your own sin. So somebody innocent has to come. And they have to die in your place and give the payment of of an executed life to pay the sin. It's all human law construct. Wrong diagnosis, we're in legal trouble. 
Wrong solution, legal solution. Design law, Adam and Eve changed their own condition, became out of harmony with God's design law for life and God himself. They will die if God doesn't intervene. God sends Christ to take up the human condition. He became sin, though he knew no sin, for the purpose of restoring God's law, the law of life, back into species human and becoming the connecting link, the vine from which we are grafted into and receive the victory of Christ in our hearts. We get new hearts and right spirits. So, Abraham, what's the natural state of the sinful human heart? Trust God or an enmity with God? And what's the scripture say about Abraham? That he trusted God. So his heart that distrusts or is alienated from God was changed to a heart that trusts God. And after his heart was set right with God in trust, then God recognized him as righteous because his heart was right with God. That's justification. That's real righteousness. It exists in him. So God sees him as righteous because it's there now. Yes, Michael. Part this righteousness retroactively? I'm not sure what you mean. You're talking about what Christ achieved? Yeah, Abraham nope. lived before Christ was on this earth and achieved the, the perfect human character. So the trust was established through the experience with God. God revealed himself in ways that were winsome to Abraham and won Abraham to trust. And so Abraham's heart of distrust was one to trust. Thus his heart was set right. And once the heart is open in trust, then we receive, this is what you're asking, the victory of Christ, the new, the righteous character, uh, is downloaded, new desires, new motives, all these types of things that Christ won as a human being for us that we could not win. We re- it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. This aspect of it was received only because his heart had been changed from distrust to trust. Now, you're asking, did the victory of Christ get applied retroactively? That is the limitation of Finite beings who are constrained to linear time. We are constrained to one moment comes after another moment, and we do not exist in time, past, present, and future. But God exists in all points of time. He is the creator of time. He exists outside of what we call time, in his infinite self. Christ left that infinite space and place and entered into linear existence when he became incarnate. Now, once he achieved the victory, the one who lives outside of linear time can apply that anywhere in in time. But if Christ never achieves the victory, the one who lives outside of time has nothing to apply anywhere in time. So I don't see it retroactively. I see that the victories of God's people, Elijah in the Old Testament, Enoch in the Old Testament, these are evidences that Christ would succeed when he came. Because if Christ never succeeded anywhere in time, the Father has nothing to apply to remedy the people throughout time. This is my way of viewing it, but I think it makes sense if we understand God as the creator of time is not constrained by it. Sabbath lesson, first paragraph, is it tells us it's a summary of the, uh, this lesson is a summary of all the various covenants um, that we'll look at. Covenant after the flood, covenant with Adam, covenant with Abraham. And because we're going to have entire lessons on all these individual covenants, I'm not going to go into the individual covenants uh, to start our lesson today. Just want you to understand that each one of them are merely a piece of the true covenant, the large true covenant of grace. That covenant, which is the plan of salvation, every one of these covenant covenant to Noah, covenant to Abraham, they're all just smaller pieces of the true covenant. So they are, and they are all manifestations of it. Sunday's lesson suggests that the covenant of God is like marriage, defines both a relationship and an arrangement. And then it goes on to say in the, le- in the lesson that the covenant ob- obligation was obedience to God's will as expressed in the Ten Commandments. Is that really what the covenant obligation is, is expressed in the Ten Commandments? Is the Ten Commandments the fulfillment and the entire expression of the law? Is that what it is? Did Adam and Eve in Eden have a law to honor their mothers? They didn't have a mother. 
Did angels, do angels have a law to honor their mothers and fathers? Do angels have laws that sins pass down two and three and three, three and four generations? No. Understand the Ten, Commandment, Ten Commandments express the principles of God's law codified for the need of sinful human species. They were never written until Sinai in this way. First four, expressions of love for God. Last six, expressions for our love. But it, they're intended as diagnostic instruments to diagnose that we're sick and as a hedge of protection for little children who don't understand that you shouldn't play in the street because you get hit by a car. They, they have no comprehension. If they just obey the rule of mommy and daddy and don't go in the car, go on the street, they don't get hit by the car. They get the benefit even though they don't even understand why. The Ten Commandments were given to protect people from the damage that comes when you break God's law, even if they don't understand why it's damaging to break God's law. Hedge of protection. Schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. But ultimately, the law is the law of love, originating God's character and the protocol upon which life was built. And as I was doing this... um, research for the class this week, I came across an article I'd never come across before out of a little pamphlet called The Savior of the World, and the article is titled The Covenant of Grace, and it was written by Ellen White more than a 100 years ago, and I wanted to read this and unpack this with you today and see what you think and whether you agree or disagree with what's described here. When I, This is the author. When I became confused... Excuse me, when I become confused over the apparent chaos in world affairs and am perplexed over some of my own trying experiences and a suggestion of doubt about the love of God arises in my mind, I find an antidote for such a poisonous atmosphere by thinking of Jesus and Calvary. Um, can you see why I was immediately intrigued by this article? That's how it opens. Uh, Are we tempted today to become confused and perplexed and distraught and upset by the chaos in the world and by our own struggles? I would recommend the same antidote. I love that. Antidote. Jesus and Calvary. Continue with the author. God does love us. His thoughts toward us are thoughts of peace. Jeremiah 29.11. Do you realize how the false legal view distorts and obstructs this truth? Billions of Christians falsely believe God is against us. A severe judge waiting to punish sinners legally required to hold us guilty and accountable unless the son pays him the blood of a human sacrifice to appease and assuage his wrath. Uh, Otherwise, he's required to kill us. Yet they turn around and say out of the next breath, yet he killed his son in our place because he's love. And he loves us so much. It creates conflict in the mind that makes no sense. It damages human reason. It causes people to lose the ability to discern. It makes them more vulnerable to authority, someone in authority to tell them what to think and to do. So they look for rules. They look for an authoritative church. They look for a creed. They look for a list of beliefs. But they don't want to think in reason because if they think in reason, something doesn't add up. The truth is, God's thoughts are peace towards us. Always peace towards us. Continuing on with the author. He has given us full proof of his love. More could, what more could he do for us than he has not already done? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but delivered him up. How will we not along with him freely give us all things? Romans eight thirty one and 32. Do we recognize God is for us, always for us? Without the influence of Jesus or Mary or the saints to plead to him to be for us. He's always for us. Continuing with the author, away with doubt and fear. In considering the wondrous love of God as revealed to us in re- in redeeming us from sin and its dreadful consequences, pause, what is God, according to this author, redeeming us from? Sin and its consequences. He's not redeeming us from his anger, his wrath, his inflicted punishment. Do you understand the imperial embedded lie in penal theologies that Christ came to take our punishment? 
He didn't come to take away our punishment. He came, as John the Baptist said, to take away the sin of the world. He came to take the diseased state, the infected heart, the fear, the selfishness, the corruption out of us. That's what he came to take, not not punishment, in order to restore us back to God's original design of love, continuing with the author. It... In considering the wondrous love of God as revealed to us in redeeming us from sin and its dreadful consequences, it may throw light upon the whole problem of his manifested grace if we give some thought to the divine purpose in creating us. What was the purpose? What was the divine purpose in creating humanity? Continuing on with the the author, just reflect on that. This is clearly stated in the scriptures. God speaks of his sons and daughters as those whom I have created for my glory. And he further says of Israel, Thou art my servant Israel, whom I will be glorified. Creation was an act of love on the part of a holy God in bringing into existence beings who could reveal the glory of his own love. What does love do? How does love function? How does it function? What do loving parents naturally choose to do? Procreate beings in their image. Why do loving parents want to have children? Even in a sinful world, marred by fear and selfishness, love still leads to share that love, doesn't it? What is God's purpose? What is the purpose of parents? Loving parents. I keep saying loving parents. Yes, some parents are selfish. They're not loving. They have children because they want to have uh, more farmhands to help on on the farm. That is not why God created us He did not create us so he could have more workers to sweep the streets of gold. He created us to be object of his love, to love us, to give us every ability and capacity to grow and develop, to be as much like him as a created being can be. Thus, we have abilities to love. We have abilities to procreate, to create beings in our own image, to have dominion, to govern. But those are to be experienced as God designed in loving service. We are to rule as Christ rules through loving service. The author continues, love formed us in his own image that we might love. Hence, now there's going to be a a power word coming here. The word is going to be that this author is going to use is the word law. How do you hear law? Listen to this. Hence, the fundamental law of our being and the very purpose for which we have been redeemed was expressed by our Lord when he was asked to distinguish between the commandments and the law. And he said, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. On these hangs all law and prophets. The fundamental law of our being, the very purpose of our existence, is to love. What kind of law is that? Think that through. It's a fundamental law of our being. Is it a rule, or is it built, designed protocol of our existence? Our very lives are constructed to operate upon it. Can you generate love by threatening to punish those who don't love you. Can you generate love that way? Do you see the perversity of suggesting that God will use his power to externally inflict punishment on those who don't love him? It's absolutely contrary to reality. God cannot get love by threatening to kill the people who won't love him. That doesn't mean they won't die of sin. Wages of sin is death. Sin when full grown brings forth death. It just means that they don't die at the hand of God. He's not the one who does it to them. 
Such lies about God when they believed break the circle of love and trust and incite fear and selfishness. The fundamental law of our being is to love. And Satan, understand, design laws, Satan can't change them. He can't create a new reality. But he can co-opt them for his nefarious and destructive purposes. Like the law of worship, by beholding we become changed, he can get us to worship false gods that corrupt us. Can't change the law of worship, but he can co-opt the law for his purpose to destroy the image of God within us. You see how that works? Okay? So love, fundamental law of our being. Satan will co-opt this. How will he co-opt it? He hijacks it by replacing the love of God with love for something else. We want to love something. It's a fundamental part of our nature. We need to love. We will love. But if it's not God first, then we end up, we might love money. And the love of money is the root of Mm. We might love power. We might love ourselves. We might love our looks or our countries or our race or our political party or our gender. And then we will fight anyone who doesn't love what we love the way we love it. Satan will pervert this core part of us, desire to love. And rather than healing, when we love anything other than God first, it destroys us. Continuing with this author, another sentence. In our relationship to God, in our relation to God, nothing can take the place of love. Pause there. Why? Well, because he has a rule. And if you break it, he's got a demerit in a book in heaven. No. It's like saying in our bodies, nothing can take the place of blood. If you replace the blood in your body with anything else, water, water's very healthy for us. Let's take all your blood out and put in water. It's better than Coca-Cola. <laughs> But what happens if you replace blood with anything else? Love is life in God's kingdom. To replace it with anything in our relation with God results in destruction, suffering, and death. Such as replacing love for God with duty to God. Duty or love for God with obedience to the rules of God. I will obey. Look at the Pharisees. We've replaced love with rule keeping. And if we love any other being more than God. Not that we can't love others. We need to. But only after we love God first. If we bestow, continue with the quote, if we bestow all my goods, if I bestow all my goods and feed the poor, and if I have a body to be burned, uh, if I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits nothing. 1 Corinthians 13.3. The author says, a burning body cannot be substituted for burning love. And the author says, and why? The author, not me, and why? Because God made us to reveal his character of love by living with him in an atmosphere of his love. Anything short of this will not satisfy the heart of God. What does that mean? That he needs it? If we don't love him, he gets his feelings hurt and he won't be satisfied. We have to adore and worship and love him so that he goes, Ah, they love me. I feel satisfied today. I hope I get my share of love tomorrow. Is that what that means? No, that's not what that means. Not at all. Parents, if your children were dying of leukemia, what is the only thing that truly satisfies you? A remedy. He won't be satisfied because if we don't have love for him restored in our heart, we die. And he doesn't want to see us die. 
It's not about his, it's not about his need. It's about our need. That's what it's about. Next, next sentence in the, in the quote. Sin banishes love and genders hatred. What are we created for? What's the fundamental law of our, of our being? To love. What does sin do? Banishes love and genders hatred. Do you understand that this is an outcome statement? This is what sin t- results in. This is how it turns out. Meaning it becomes diagnostic or a symptom that you can identify whether God's law of love is an operation or sin, which is anti-love, is an operation. You can look at that and discern God's principles at work, sin work. And in the world today, do we see more love or do we see more hatred and less love in the world today? Well, sin banishes love and increases hatred, then you can be certain what's going on in the world today is not this movement of the Spirit of God, no matter what claims of justice are being sought. It is not the movement of God. You can be certain there's more sin in the world when you see these symptoms. And what is sin? Transgression of God's design law for life. In other words, we see more hatred and less love because people are seeking to advance their agendas through human law. The the methods that are coercive and antagonistic to truth, love, and freedom. Imperialism, legislation, coercion, force, destruction of liberty. That's what's happening in the world. And whenever you take away liberties and freedoms, you damage love and you incite rebellion. Every time. It's a design law. And that's what's happening in the world. Yes? Perfect example of that is what happened in Georgia this week. It's a crime if you bring food or water to somebody standing in line to vote. Fast in Georgia this week. Next, uh, next from the author. Sin seeks, sin seeks to abolish the law of love to God and to man, and to put in its place the law of selfishness. Law of selfishness, Paul refers to as law of sin and death. The world knows it as survival of the fittest, me first. It's fear-driven, watch out for self, to make self stronger than you, richer than you, more secure than you, safer than you, more successful than you. I'm afraid that if I don't, then then I'll get hurt, I'll get left out. So the law of sin and death is fear-driven, me-first, survival drives. And that's what sin is. Sin seeks to abolish love, the love of God, the law of love to God and man, and put in its place selfishness. Understand, sin is not merely doing bad things. Sin interferes with God's design obstructing actual life and function damages and destroys. And when someone sins against us, understand the insidiousness of sin. When someone, when, when someone sins against you or somebody you love or somebody you care about and it's an actual wrong, an actual, an actual act of injustice, a seed, a wound, when you're wounded by the wrong, there's a seed planted in your heart that if you don't root it out, will grow into bitterness, resentment, Anger, hostility, you will feel justified. It's not right. What you did was wrong. And you will feel more, more, more fearful of being hurt again. So you'll want to then use the very methods of the world. I want to get, I want to get more power. I want to get a gun. I want to get, I want to get a, a, a Rottweiler. I want to get, I want to get the government. I want to get the law. I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to punish and I'm going to, I'm going to destroy the people who hurt me. And I will do injustice. I will hurt others in the name of Justice. These are the kingdoms of the world. This is why all the kingdoms of the world are called beastly. It's why none of the kingdoms of the world are Christ's kingdom. This is what's happening in the world. This is how the beast is rising. We pluck out those sin seeds when people do wrong from our heart by God's grace. By forgiving the wrongdoer, by applying truth, 
and love into our hearts by understanding that every act of sin, but you only can get there if you have design law. If you have imposed law, you can't get there. If you're operating under human law and someone does wrong, if we don't hold them accountable, they get away with it. They have to be held accountable. Somebody has to punish them. We, gotta, we, we, we can't let it go until they've actually been held, held accountable, see? But if you have design law, you understand that every act of sin reacts on the sinner. Makes it more easy for them to sin again. It sears the conscience, hardens the harp, warps the character takes them more and more away from God. And if they don't experience repentance and God's grace, they ultimately die of their sin condition in the end. We do not have to hold the sinner accountable. It'd be like, <clears throat> you know, my, uh, my brother just got away with smoking two packs of cigarettes and, and he didn't get caught. Maybe I should go smoke two packs too so I can get away with it. How silly is that? Why would I want to destroy my lungs? But this is how the world thinks when they think that sin is merely doing bad deeds and it's not breaking the the laws upon which God built life to operate. Continue with the quote. Sin has no time or place for the worship of God, but sets up the idolatry of self. Sin must be dealt with in order that the purpose of God in our creation might not be thwarted, but that the image of God may be restored in us and God has dealt with sin. What is his purpose in our creation? Did you already forget? What's his purpose in our creation? To glorify him through love. That's right. And the fundamental law of our being is to have his law operate in us so that we glorify him in love. But sin is interfering with that purpose. And sin must be dealt with in order for the purpose of God to be realized. What does it mean to deal with sin? Does this sound, this description, before we can get into it, does it sound like in order to deal with sin so that we can realize God's purpose, which is to love and glorify him, does that sound like that dealing is a legal accounting mechanism and declaring things that are not so to be so? Or does it sound like there's something wrong with us that has to be fixed? That's what's going on. Here, here's the next uh, quote portion of the quote man was originally crowned with glory and honor and given dominion over the world empowered to reign upon a throne of love think that through what kind of crown glory and honor from where did such a what does that mean from where does such a crown originate crown of glory and honor where where would that come from from god who built us with abilities and capacities and operational protocols to love beings created in his image do you remember it when ezekiel in chapter 10 has a vision of the throne of god in the vision what does he see god's throne which represents governance or rulership, is resting on something. What's it, what's it built on? A rotating wheel inside a moving circle inside a rotating wheel. Figuratively, the image of love in action. Love is always a circle of giving or beneficence. That's how love works. God's government is built on love. We, according to this author, have been given a throne. Originally in Eden, dominion to govern the planet. The throne was the throne of Love. This is how Adam and Eve were to govern and have dominion. Contrast this with Satan's government. In Isaiah, Satan did not think equality, excuse me, Satan uh, tried to ascend up and reign over, remember? Take God's throne and rule. All human governments and all Satan's systems have elite rulers, pharaohs, kings, queens, elites, power mongers, who rule over and exploit the masses through labor, through work, through enslavement, through taxes, in order to sustain the power of the elites. This is how Satan's systems always work. But Christ, who did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, humbled himself all the way to the cross in order to do what? To have us be exploited to sustain him, or to sacrifice himself in order to redeem, sustain, and share his throne with us, lifting us up. completely contrary systems. 
Watch what's happening in the world. You'll see the rising of the systems of this world. More and more power mongers, elites who want to, who know better. You don't have the ability to think or make your own decisions. Uh, we, we have to concentrate power in the hand of a few corporations and a few ruling, ruling members of, uh, of the government who will, who will make rules and then use the power of the state to, to force everyone to comply. When do you see the ruling elites actually living by the own rule, their, their own rules they put on the rest of us? Never. The pharaohs didn't have to obey the laws. The emperors of China and, and Japan, they didn't have to obey the laws. The kings and queens of England, they always got to do what they want. This is the way it always is with the elites. The elites don't have to obey the rules. Understand that there is no government on earth that operates as God's government does. None. The one government on earth that for a period of time came up with lamb-like principles speaks like a dragon in the end. But the lamb-like principles were freedom of conscience and freedom of government. In other words, the people would hold the power over the elites. The Constitution of the United States was set up to restrain the, the elite brokers, to restrain the church, if you look at the European church, there was a group of elites that exploited the masses to restrain the aristocracies, which, which today, what are the aristocr- aristocracies in, in, in old Europe? Were the landowners, the ship magnets, the mining magnets, the big corporations, the, the, the aristocracy in America today? Google, Facebook, Amazon, um, and all of these, uh, you know, Twitter. These are the big elite, Disney. These are the big elites, these big corporations. These are the aristocracies. And then the governmental officials themselves. And the Constitution was set up to restrain them, to limit their power over the masses. That's the purpose of it. That's that's to give liberty to the people. And understand the purpose of liberty to the people. What God wants for every person, Hebrews 5.14, the mature are those who develop by practice the ability to discern right from wrong. By practice. God presents truth and love, leaves you free. He wants to win you with evidence, truth, and love. Come, let us reason together. And by exercising your God-given ability to think, reason, and then choose, you develop and mature. That is not what the elites want. They don't want you thinking. You'll question their power. You'll see things that don't make sense. You'll see, see things that are contradictory to actual reality. And so they want to destroy your image of God with you. They want to destroy your capacity for thinking. They want to be someone who lives in fear so that you simply comply with authority. That's what the elites want. Distrust of God dethroned mankind and he became a slave to sin. Our throne was the throne of love. Lies believe, break the circle of love and trust, and in the hearts filled with fear and selfishness. We are no longer ruling from thrones of love. We are now running fearful for what's going to happen to us. We're slaves to, to sin. The purpose of God in the gospel is to restore man to his place on the throne by renewing the love of God in his heart and so enabling him to conquer selfishness. He that overcomes, I will give to sit down with me on my throne and also as I also overcame and sat down on my father with my father on his throne, Revelation 3.21. Love is the all-conquering power and love will win. How is it that we're restored to the throne? By having the law of love put back into our hearts. This is literal. This is reality. Revelation describes those in the end. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They're not driven by protecting self, survival of the fittest, me first. They're driven by love for the Lord and others more than self. The law has been restored. This is not an accounting mechanism. It's not something going on in books outside. This is happening in hearts and minds of people. The source and ground of our salvation is the grace of God, which is love dealing with sin. What is grace? You're going to see in our lesson next week that they call it unmerited favor. This author calls it love dealing with sin. And what does love do? How does love deal with sin? Well, it pays the penalty so the ruling authority won't kill you. No, it eradicates it from hearts, minds, and characters. It purges it. It removes fear, it removes self, it restores love for God and others in the heart. The assurance of this love manifested in saving grace is made known to us in the promises of God 
which constitute the covenant of grace. What's this covenant? We're talking about the covenants now. I was getting there. This article builds. Do you notice the groundwork it lays? You notice the focus of what's happening. It is nothing legal going on here. It is a condition uh, which has happened to humankind, which disrupts God's love in the heart, which causes fear and selfishness, which enslaves us to principles that are antagonistic to life. And the covenant of grace is God's love working to eradicate the sin out of us and restore us back to eternal life by putting love in our hearts. The fundamental premise designated as the new covenant are these. Behold, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. My covenant will be for them in this regard, for this is the covenant I will make with them. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So what is the covenant? Again, does this sound legal? It's recreative, regenerative, transformational. The moral law, which is to be written in the heart, is the law of love. Again, design law. The moral law is the expression of the very nature of God of love as interpreted to us in the life and teachings of Christ, who said, I have kept my Father's commandments. To keep this law is to love as God loves. To the natural heart, this is impossible. And so God has promised to give us a new heart. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. In harmony with this provision is the prayer of David. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. We may call this conversion or regeneration or the new birth, or a new creation. But in any case, it is the impartation of a new life from God, that life which is love and is revealed in loving. Is that a legal accounting and viewing? Or is that actual regenerating and recreating? Understand that the, the, the insidiousness, the, the evil of this penal substitution lie that has infected Christianity because so many claim the legal change without ever experiencing the reality of what God has for them that transforms the life. To those who have this experience, this experience of conversion, regeneration, new birth, are partakers of the divine nature, Second Peter 1, 4. And that nature is expressed in obedience to the divine law of love. When the principle of love is implanted in the heart, when man is renewed after the image of him that created him, the new covenant promise is fulfilled. I will put my law in their hearts and minds. Again, do you see that the new covenant has nothing legal about it? The law is not human law. It's design law. So it's nothing more legal than, than exercise is legal. When you exercise, your muscles get stronger. You get physical health benefits. It's the law of exertion, laws of health. Here is the true test. If we abide in Christ, if the love of God dwells in us, our feelings, our thoughts, our purposes, our actions will be in harmony with the will of God as expressed in the precepts of his law. Now, this is in your heart. That does not mean you are free of temptation. That does not mean you are free of struggles. That means in your heart, every struggle you have and every temptation you face and every occasion where you might stumble, you're grieved in your heart and your heart's sick over it and you wit and you go, oh, oh, I hate being so weak and because your heart does not align with it. Your heart is alienated from it. And this is where the devil will trick people. They say, well, if, I, if, if the true test is that, and, and I just stumbled and, and I was sleep deprived and I, and I just got irritable and I, and I snapped at my wife, then clearly I, 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 I don't have the true test. My heart's not. No. If you snapped at your wife and you grieved, you go, oh, Lord, I'm so weak. I get irritable sometimes. I hate being this way. Your heart's still right. And then you go to your wife and say, I didn't, you didn't deserve me to snap like that. Will you forgive me? And this experience is guaranteed to us by the promise of God and is provided for us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of love. Who's the agency that takes the victory of Christ and reproduces in us? 
It's the Holy Spirit. Do you see why the Holy Spirit is under such attack in certain circles with certain constructs that try to diminish the activity or even the existence of the Holy Spirit? And obedience to the law of God is not a hardship, not a burdensome duty imposed upon us as the price of blessings from God. Did you hear that language, folks? Notice the language. God's law is not imposed upon us as a duty. It's not imposed law. It's not imperial. God's law is the fruit and the test of our fellowship with him. But at the same time, it is the absolute condition of maintaining our standing before God. Why? For the same reason as breathing. If God says, there's a law of respiration, in order for you to live and be vigorous and healthy and vibrant, you need to breathe. All these rules... Such a chore, such a duty, such an... I I could be so much freer if I didn't have to breathe. See how silly that... That's how people will try and construct God's law because they see the law as a system of rules rather than design protocols for life. Harmony with all of God's laws are like breathing fresh air. They invigorate you. They give you health. They give you peace. They give you life. All of them. They're designed for your wellness. Breaching them injures you. In the same way that smoking cigarettes will injure you. At the very root of the relation of a creature to his God and of God admitting the creature to his fellowship lies the thought of obedience. In the promise of the new covenant, it takes the first place. The crowning gift of Christ's exaltation was the Holy Spirit to bring salvation to us as an inward thing. When you hear obedience, do you hear it through human law? Got these rules, got to follow them. Got a policeman, what, policeman in the sky, follow me around to give, give demerits into my heavenly ledger. And if I don't get them off the ledger, I'm going to have to pay. Is that how I see obedience? All this work I got to do, or do I see obedience in the same way as every other design law? Uh, whether it's respiration, whether it's exertion, whether it's sleep hygiene, whatever it might be, they're all designed for your wellness. It's the agency of the Holy Spirit that brings salvation to us as an inward thing. You cannot obey if the heart does not long to obey. This is what Paul was trying to say in the New Testament. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees who kept the law until the Spirit came and revealed to him in the Tenth Commandment, that's not covet. Behaviorally observing the rules, you're still not obeying because your heart isn't in it. You're looking for a way to get around the rules. But when the commandment came, thou shalt not covet, there's no behavior to do. It's a heart issue. And so true obedience is always from a heart that loves God. And if you don't love God and want to do whatever it is you're doing for love and glory of God, you're not obeying. So continuing on, we're going we're gonna to finish this up. I'm sorry it's taken so long. The enabling power, enabling, you want enabling? Enabling power for such a life of obedience is ministered to us in the most helpful promise, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk my statutes. This means simply that God in Christ has personally assumed the responsibility for our life of love and obedience according to the covenant promise which he has made in these words. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever and uh, for the good of them and their children. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them. This is the gospel of grace of God. This is the covenant of grace. Here is the distinguishing feature of Christianity as interpreted by us. And by, and by, by, by inspiration. Not by us, by inspiration. By promise and by oath, God has pledged himself as our Savior and the Savior of those who trust him. In other words, the new covenant is... God's promise and responsibility to fix and heal the brokenness in you. To give you a new desire and then to give you the power to live out the new life. It's not up to you. Your responsibility is to trust. To trust him. And then to choose. We have to continue on. There's several other key elements we have to, to get to. Another feature of the new covenant, the covenant of grace, which marks its superiority to the old, superiority to the old covenant, is that 
it has a gloriously efficient mediator, Jesus, the Son of God. Boy, I could spend a whole five minutes or more just talking about what that means. We don't have time to go into that because we're already over time. Through his mediation, all the blessings of the new covenant are ministered unto us. I will just say that. Where's the, where's the mediator ministering? He's not ministering to his father. God did not get changed. God's law did not get changed. Humankind was changed when Adam sinned. And the mediations of Christ are designed to fix the broken sin condition in us. So he's mediating in our hearts and minds. By his life of suffering, obedience, culminating his death on the cross, he has made atonement for our sins. Can't even talk about what atonement means. At one meant, there was a clue, bringing, bringing us back into unity. Exalted at the right hand of God and sitting upon the throne of grace, he has become the surety of a better covenant. And through his mediation, the gifts of God are supplied to us. And all the requirements of God are wrought in us. Is this sounding penal legal? It's applied for, through the merits of Christ. Atonement is achieved by applying his blood to record books in heaven. So when the father looks at the record books, he will declare us to be righteous, even though we're not. And that's where Christ is mediating in heaven before the throne to plead to the father so the father won't kill us. That is not what this author describes. The mediation and the application of what he has wrought out happens in us. That's because we serve a God who created reality who is the sustainer of reality, and who is the recreator that will fix and heal if we trust him. Apart from his mediation, we would be utterly helpless, having no hope without God in the world. That's right. We have no power to change our heart, to fix the brokenness. We can trust him and open the heart and then receive his victory. Okay, this is where I needed to get. If that wasn't enough. But some... Someone may feel like suggesting you're making it too easy for the transgressor by placing all the responsibility for success on the Christian life on God. Do not misunderstand me. There is one thing which God does not do and which he does not permit any other person to do. He has given us, he has given to us freedom of will and he will not disregard it. I can say no to God. And he will be governed accordingly. But I must take the inevitable consequences if I say no to God. In this sense, I am the arbiter of my own destiny. I can make my own choice. What law is being described here? Law of liberty, law of freedom. Understand the leaders of this world do not want you to have a free will. They do not want you to make your own informed choice. They want, to, they want to compel you, coerce you, intimidate you, and deceive you. But they don't want to enlighten you and leave you free. If you can't see this, what's happening in the world and the media giants today, it's so obvious. God is the source of light and truth, and he provides everything to give you that freedom to choose. But it's your choice to make. The privilege and meaning were recognized by Moses when he called heaven to witness against them to choose this day, cursings or blessings. There is no power which will compel us to choose to commit sin. Hear that? No power can compel you to sin. Next sentence. There is no power which will compel you to choose to do righteousness. You are left free to sin or to pursue righteousness. We alone are responsible for the choice which we make. Therefore, we commit no sin without first consenting to it. Judas was a traitor at heart before he actually betrayed the Lord. I wish I had time to go into that. Many people in the penal legal model, it's all about the externals, the behavior, the acts, the deeds. No, it's very clear. The acts and deeds are always manifestation of the heart. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You choose to rebel in heart before it's carried out in deed. And that's why the plan of salvation can never be done through human mechanisms and human legal penal systems and external payments and judicial declarations. It's always the kingdom of God is within you. It's rebuilding and healing the heart. 
Everything depends on the right action of the will. The power of God, uh, power of choice God has given to men. It is theirs to exercise. You cannot change your heart. You cannot of yourself, uh, excuse me, yeah, you cannot change the heart. You cannot of yourself give to God its affections, but you can choose to serve him. You can give him your will. He will then work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And when you give God your will, he begins working in you to free you from fear, free you from selfishness, free you from old habits, to put new desires of love, new discernment in your head, and you are being transformed in the process, and you develop what are called fruits of the Spirit. And the last fruit of the Spirit, self-control. This surrendering the will to God, you do not become a puppet. You do not become a Lord. Um, I am in the driver's seat, and I just keep wrecking, so I'm going to go over here to the passenger seat. You take the driver's seat of my life, and I'm just going to sit here and wait for you to decide. Um, you just pull the strings of my life. Uh, I'm just going to sit here as a passenger and let you kind of drive. That's not how it works. That's, a, that's fraud. God will not take your will. In, in, the, in, the, in the sense of deciding for you. He takes it and cleanses it. He ennobles it. He purifies it. He frees it from the encumbrances that keep you from being able to act independently in righteousness. But then you get enkratia, and within, krat, autocrat, democrat, authority. You get authority to act with your will in harmony with God. I do not need to be told, this is the author, I do not need to be told that the God of this world will use every possible means to keep us from choosing to serve God. I know it in my own experience. He paints the glories of the world in glowing colors and promises all that the natural heart desires if we would only choose to worship him. How do people choose to worship Satan in this world? Do you think it's primarily through joining a satanic coven? This is not how people choose to serve Satan primarily. They choose to serve him by worshiping a being who has rules. And if you don't keep the rules, justice will require he punish you and torture you and kill you for breaking his rules. A being who requires a blood payment of a human sacrifice before uh, he will authorize any blessing be granted your direction. This is worshiping Satan. And then practicing those same authoritarian measures and how we seek to do justice in the world around us. And the author goes on to say, do not listen to his fables and deceit. From the first promise of victory over the serpent made in Eden to the last promise of the advent of our Lord in glory to, uh, to reward those who have redeemed from his love, we are dealing with with the covenant of grace. There's one covenant from the very beginning to the very end, one covenant of grace. And in closing, she says, saving faith is a transaction by which those who receive Christ join themselves in covenant relation with him. That's what it is, guys. It's transformational healing. The covenant is a relationship of trust. Your job, trust and follow and choose to apply your will to his side. But all the healing, all the regenerating, all the recreating, all the power comes from him. It's not us. All comes from him. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that when Adam sinned and damaged this creation that was built on a fundamental law to love you and to love others, that you did not abandon us to fear and selfishness, but you sent your son to become sin, though he knew no sin, to be tempted in every way just like we are, yet to love perfectly, restoring in the humanity that he uptook your perfect law of life, the law of love. And now we ask that the Spirit will come and take the victory of Christ, that we might be true partakers of the divine nature, having your living law reproduce in us, that we can go out in a world filled with lies and selfishness and falsehoods and live truthfully in harmony with you and your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen.